Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word and that you love us so much and care for us so much. We ask you to help us to see what you would want us to see in this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Isaiah chapter 60. This is kind of an interesting chapter. It talks about three different things as it goes through. It talks about the church. It talks about the millennial kingdom. And it talks about the new heaven and new earth. And it doesn't really transition very well between each one. Uh, it doesn't kind of say this is what you're going to do. So we're going to kind of look at this and work our way through all of these uh, different uh, pictures. Uh, another problem is that the entire chapter is one paragraph, and I'm not sure that I'm going to read the whole paragraph and, to start with. So Isaiah 60, starting at verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of, your, of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall rise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. And the Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around about, and see all they gather themselves together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far, and your daughters shall nurse at your side. Then you shall see and flow together, and your heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto you. The forces of the Gentiles shall come upon you. The multitude of camels shall cover you, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall, co shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto you. The rams of Nebathiah shall minister unto you. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud, as the droves, as the doves to the windows? Surely the isles shall wait upon for me, the ships of Tarshish, first to bring your sons from afar, their silver, their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord your God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. And the sons of strangers shall build up your walls, and your kings and their kings shall minister unto you for my wrath. For in my wrath I smote you, and but in my favor I shall have mercy on you. So here we have an interesting picture. Isaiah is a great book. The last half of the last third of Isaiah is really a very grace-oriented, mercy-oriented uh, section. He says, Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Stand firm, endure. This is an easy one. This isn't just stand up out of bed. This isn't just stand up out of your chair. This word literally means stand up strongly and endure troubles, right? So in the, in the Hebrew, it's a little stronger than just stand. <laughs> it, it is to take a stand and shine for your light is come. And the light in this particular case is God. Your light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you or appears or is seen on you. This is kind of the way that, this is, that we look at. When we become Christians, have you ever looked at somebody and just known they were a Christian? Or somebody maybe that you've been praying for to get saved walks in and you just look at them, and before they can even tell you that they're born again, the light and the glory that shines from their face just tells you you've been, you've been changed. 
you're, you're new, and then, you get to, then they get to tell you, I accepted Jesus. I, he's my Lord and Savior, and you can go. And sometimes I've been said, I knew just looking at you that that had happened. This is the way it should be. If we are truly letting God live in us, he should shine out of us. And this is what it's saying. Arise, stand and affirm, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen or shines upon you, is seen upon you. And this is something that's important. Somebody who says they're a Christian and never shows any walk with God probably isn't. Now, I'm not their judge. We're not their judge. But if, they do, if we do not see God shining out of somebody, it's very unlikely that he is inside them. Now, can it be possible? It's possible. Uh, James says, you know, show me your works by your, you know, uh, without, without works, uh, Show me your works without faith, and I'll show you my works by my faith. He's not saying you cannot have faith without works. He's just saying there's no way you can prove it. How do you show somebody that you have faith if you don't stand and let it work out of you? But when we have that faith in us, and God's in us, it will come out. And we can be able to say, hey, look. Now, Jesus also says that works alone are, are not going to do it. You know, he says, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? So works aren't enough to say, yes, that person saved. But when you see the light and the glory of God shining on top of those works, you know that there, there's something there. And it's pretty easy. You know, the spirit knows the spirit. When you're around somebody that has the spirit of God in you, the spirit of God in you reaches out and says, there's my spirit as, as well. And this is what he's saying, arise and say, says, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, the gross darkness, the people. So he says, darkness, obscurity, without God. And a gross darkness, very deep clouds. You know, as we look at our world, our world is getting darker and darker by almost by the minute, it seems like, anymore. There was a time when I figured we might have a long time because it wasn't so dark, but there's things happening in our world that really scare me about you know, how close are we at the end times. And it might be that God is right there ready to, to have the end times if there's not a repentance because things are getting dark. How dark can they get? I don't know. We're not quite as bad as the Roman Empire yet, and which means we're not as bad as the days before of Noah, but we're getting real close to all of that. In our, in our world today, mob rule is what matters, which is the problem with democracies in and of themselves is the majority rules. doesn't matter if they're making right decisions or bad decisions. And we look in the Bible, the majority is almost always wrong. doesn't matter which, where you pick out, the majority is almost going the wrong, always going the wrong way. Why? Because man is evil in our heart. And if we go by what we want and what we feel, we'll be going against God. And I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a single place where the majority is right in the Bible. You know, because I've gone through it so many times, the majority always leads into sin. Now, there's times when some good things happen. The people follow Hezekiah, and they go and become more righteous, but they're righteous because they're following their king and not necessarily God. Because right whenever they can, they go against God. <laughs> and we see even the children of Israel following Moses. Every time they turn around, the majority are going against Moses and God. We see it in Judges. The majority keep going against God. Uh, 
all the way through, it doesn't matter who you look at, the majority, when they're, when they're given the freedom to make any say, make bad decisions. Which is why democracies aren't the best form of government. And our founding fathers understood that republics and democracies weren't a great government. Because they knew that man is evil in their heart and would make bad decisions. The best form of government is a government, a monarchy with a benevolent ruler, which means a good ruler. Now, the unfortunate thing is most of the rulers, when they get in power, get malevolent, evil. So what are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to the millennial kingdom when Jesus himself reigns, because <laughs> he won't go bad because of power, because he already holds the power anyway. That is the only form of government that will ever be good government. People can be good for a short period of time as long as they're making righteous decisions and following God, but as soon as they slip away from God, power will corrupt them. And we see it even in our, in our government. We elect people who say they're gonna do, do the right things, and, and when they first hit the, hit the, hit the field, they, they start trying to make changes and then give up because they find out that it is a behemoth that is going to be very hard to tame. And we see this over and over, and here it says, the people are in obscurity, but, right in the middle of chapter, verse 2, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory shall be seen upon you. A little bit about Israel, but also about us as Christians. God comes on us and he is seen on us. And this is the wonderful thing that happens when God steps in and he comes upon us or in us and shines out from us. And people know that we're different. Now, they may not like us, which is quite likely. Many Christians aren't liked because we take a stand for God. But they know that we're real. They know that we're different. They, they may go, well, we don't really like what he's saying, but he definitely believes what he's, you know, what he's saying and it has made a change in their life. But they don't like it. Why? And we all know, if you can remember times when you used to run with a rugged crowd or, and everything, and you got saved, you got all these accusations, well, you think you're better than us, you just think you're too, you know, you've become a goody two-shoes, and all these different things that they'll say, they envy you being able to walk away from everything that they do, but they also are, are jealous and try to drag you back down into their pit. And this is the way the world is. They like what they see when somebody gets saved and, and, and gets out of the problems and, they, and see it, but they also want to drag that person back down because they're miserable. They just get miserable. That person seems to have their whole life act, and act put together. They want it, but they don't want to surrender. So the next best thing, if you don't want to surrender, is try to drag that person back down. And we've seen it happen over and over again. And if somebody's not a good, strong believer in good fellowship, they'll be drugged down very quick. If a Christian tries to keep their unsaved friends and be unequally yoked with their unsaved friends, they will be drugged into the pit. Very rarely does a Christian ever pull their friends out of the pit without getting them saved. And if you've ever tried to pull somebody up, you're holding them if they're falling off of something, you know how hard that can, can be. If you're on a tree branch and you're trying to hold them from falling or the roof of a building or heaven forbid a cliff and they're and they're hanging over the cliff you don't have any leverage you have nothing to be able to pull them back and it's really hard to get them back up and it's the way that life is it's easier to be pulled down than to pull something or someone up and 
we are a light. People look at us and they go, I'm interested. I'm interested, but. I'm interested in what you are, but I, I don't want to surrender. Yeah, what's wrong with you? You're different. You're no longer having fun. I know I'm not having fun, but you're not having what little fun I'm having, and I just don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand how you think it's fun to read the Bible, go to church, uh, spend time with Christians. You're no longer listening to the, to the crazy music that makes us go insane. You're listening to these, this music that, that, that you say is making, making you make better decisions. You're, you're, you're hanging out with people that are making better decisions. What's wrong with you? I just don't understand this. Because they, don't, they like what they see, but they're afraid of it. Most people are afraid to give up who they are. They don't like who they are. They don't like where they're going, but they don't want to give it up. And the old adage is, it's, it's easier to live with the devil you know than to make a change. And I go, well, at least I understand. You know, I know that I'm having a bad time. I know that I'm being ripped apart. I know that I'm not enjoying life, but at least I know this lifestyle. And people get to the place where they have to get to the bottom before they finally say, I'm ready to give God a chance. All right, well, it's worked for some of my buddies. I guess I'll give it a try. And God says, just repent. And here it is. Your lifestyle will be seen. <laughs> and why? And I love this because look at this. It says, the Lord shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. It's God that does the work. And I love this about God. I do not have to change my life. I do not have to work and struggle to make myself better because God comes in, crucifies my flesh, and he says, I'm now going to live out of you, and people are going to see me. Because Jesus said in the, in the Gospels, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He wants to be lifted up in our life, and it's him that draws people to him. Now, they also get rebelled by him and repelled by him. The bright light in darkness, people turn their eyes away from the light. If you've ever turned on a light switch in a really pitch black room, what's the first thing you do? You close your eyes and you turn away from the light. If you're smart, you, hit, you do want to look into the light when you turned it on. But you know, sometimes you don't know exactly where the light is. You hit that light switch, and all of a sudden, for, momentary, for that moment, you're blind because the light just shines, and that's how it is with Jesus. In our life, he shines and he blinds those that are in darkness, that are living in the obscurity, in the thick clouds. And all of a sudden, a light comes piercing through the, through the darkness. Some move toward it. Most <laughs> scurry away like rats and roaches to the, to the nearest corner and, and crevice that they can find and try to run from the light. And we tend to do the same thing at times. If we are living, even as Christians, if we are living in some sin and God shines the light on us, we have two choices the same. We can turn to him and repent, which we don't do all the time, <laughs> or we can try to hide away in some corner and say, God, I didn't see your light, I didn't hear you. You know, closing my eyes, closing my ears, covering my ears, and running the other direction. And it's sad that we do that as his, as his children. The world does it in greater numbers. We at least will try oftentimes to say, God, okay, thank you. I need to, I need to respond. It's harder to do it the closer you get to God. It's, yes and no. Yeah. The more practice we have doing it, yeah. the easier it gets. But you're right. There's a brighter light that shines on us. Yeah. 
And it's almost repelling. It's almost repelling because now I'm seeing things that I never saw before. But again, as I've made, the more I make the good decisions, the easier the good decision becomes to make. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's much harder to turn away. Is that what you mean? Yeah. It's, yeah, the closer we get, the harder it is because it's like it is more surrounding to us. And we've made the decisions that we want to. And we start making those decisions, and it gets easier and faster to make those decisions. And the more we go away from them, the easier it is to decide not to follow. And the world's decision to make and turn to God is a big one for them because it's totally different from everything they've ever done. They've always wanted to do things their way my way, or my group's way at the very least. And to turn to God is a big deal because here's a totally different way of thinking. And the light isn't as bright. As, as you say, the closer we get to God, the brighter his light becomes to us because we're drawing closer to him. The further away we are from him, the less that light is shining through because it's got to go through a lot of darkness and a lot of cloud to get to us. If you've ever been near a lighthouse, if you're right on top of that lighthouse, that light is bright. <laughs> if you're Miles away from it, it's somewhat bright, but it's, it's distant. You can pretty much ignore it if you wanted to. But if you're right on top of it, you don't ignore that light, <laughs> especially if you're on the water. And that light comes around, and you're real close, and everything all of a sudden becomes light. It's a huge thing as if you're five miles away, and you can just barely see that lighthouse. You want it. You know it's you know, marking danger or safety, depending on what lighthouse it is. But the same thing with people. The lost world looks at that light and says, nope, not going to go anywhere near it. Don't want that light. I don't like the life I have. I really don't want the light to shine on it to show me how bad it is. And that's why they don't like us as Christians involved with them. That's why the world will eventually leave us as Christians, even if we're not preaching at them all the time. The God and the Holy Spirit in us will convict them. And then we open our mouth and we talk about God. And that really gets them convicted. And eventually, even if we're not always preaching at them, they will slowly drift away because, or turn to God. Usually they drift away. And it's hard because the God is saying, I am going to do that work. And I love it that it's all him. Verse 3 says, And the Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Here's a picture of Jesus. And most of this is also can be of Jesus and the church. He says, the Gentiles shall come to your light. Thankfully for us, Gentiles got saved. <laughs> All, right? All along, from the very beginning, God was telling the Jews, Gentiles can come and worship. All right? Remember when we went through Leviticus, and he says, these rules apply to you and to everybody in your borders. So he was saying, you don't have to be a Jew to be able to worship me. And yet the Jews decided that, okay, yeah, you guys can all worship, but you have to become Jews first. This was the big decision that the disciples had to go through when the church first started. All of a sudden, Gentiles were getting, getting saved and getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. They did not know what to do with that. Contrary to popular opinions, the disciples were not trying to start a new, new religion. They were Jews, they believed they were Jews, and the church for the first century was a Jewish entity. It was a sub-branch of Judaism for the first century, up until the first century. And it just happened to take Gentiles in. 
and not make them get circumcised and not make them follow the laws, which eventually made the Jews get mad at them and say, well, you're no longer Jews because you're not following the laws. And eventually they got pushed out of Judaism. But Paul always went to the synagogues first to preach to the, to the born Jews and would be rejected. So he said, fine, we're going to go to the Gentiles and we're going to bring them in. But the early church was a Jewish entity. All right. It, again, it wasn't until about 100 AD that they got pushed out from under the cover of Judaism, which was good for the church because the Jews had special rules that they had worked out with Rome when they let Rome, quote unquote, conquer them. Conquer, they were never militarily conquered. They went to Rome and said, you know, if you will allow us to keep our religion and our, our ways, we will recognize you as master. So the Christian church following underneath the Jewish religion was protected as, as it started growing. If it had tried to grow outside of that protection, it would have had a lot more problems than it did. Now it has a lot of problems. Right? After it comes out and Nero starts attacking it and all these different emperors start attacking it, it was a struggle to survive. But by that time it had grown to a, to a large number of people. So we see all of this, the Gentiles will come to the light. This is why at this point we know we're in the church age in this section of this chapter. Gentiles coming to God. Lift up your eyes around about and see all they gather themselves together and they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall nurse at your side. So he says they, all these people are going to come from all over the world. So now we're kind of transitioning between just the church which draws in all the world and also the millennial kingdom, which is going to bring all the world to Jesus. So I said the transitions on these are very <laughs> hard to follow. All right, but he says all, the, and he says, and your sons and daughter, and your daughter, and their daughters shall nurse at your side or be made firm. All right, this is kind of an old English word for nurse, which doesn't necessarily mean to to uh, uh, feed with milk, but to babysit, to encourage, to grow them up. All right, so your daughters shall come up and they will be established. They will be made firm at your side. And so we see all of this going on, the, the gathering of the people. Then you shall see and flow together and your heart shall fear and, in, and be enlarged because of the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto you and the forces of the Gentiles shall come unto you. This section is going to be a little more difficult to look at because some of the words aren't quite what we think they are. Then you shall see or shall honor, okay? You shall be honored. You shall, you shall revere and flow together. Or literally it means shine, all right? You shall, be, you shall honor and you shall shine forth and be made large. The church is, for many years was made large. Now it's had its ebb and flows over the, over the millennia, but it has ebbed and flowed. Israel has done the same thing. It has gone from 70 people going into Egypt to three and a half million people coming out of Egypt to being under David and, and Solomon being so large that they couldn't even count their army and God didn't want them to count their army because they were so large. And even today they're being raised up again. Israel in the Middle East is quite a powerhouse even though it's small. It's got a great military, and it is a super wealthy nation. 
and they grow enough food in that little tiny country to feed all of Europe. That's an amazing thing when you look at it. A country about the size of New Jersey feeds Europe. And if they rejected Israel's food, they'd starve because Israel supports them with all this stuff. Israel has more minerals and, and, and stuff than most of the world around them. God has raised them up and drawn people to them. And we see here that it says, you're going to have them drawn to you. You're going to support them. And Israel supports everybody. Israel's the most democratic, free country in the Middle East. All right? Muslims and Arabs and everybody else have no problem living in Israel. Now, they try to make life troublesome for Israel, but they're given rights. They have representation in their Israel's par parliament. They can get elected. They get into the parliament. And they're not put down. It's the only place where the opposing parties and different religions have that much freedom to show up. And yet, everybody tries to destroy them and make fun of them. And yet, they're the closest thing to a democracy in the world, period, out there. And without their support, they would have trouble. And God is saying, I'm supporting you, and I'm drawing, I'm drawing towards you, and you're going to be enlarged. Because of the abundance or the multitude of the sea shall be converted unto you. In other words, lots of people are going to get changed. <laughs> All right? What has happened with the Church of Christ? People have been converted. The Jews were supposed to have gone out and converted the world. They ignored their call. And then they were put on the sideline for a period. God is not done with the Jews. Don't get wrong. God is not done with the Jews. But for a period of time, he says, okay, you have rejected me. You have not done what I've said. I have given you 2,000 years to, to get, get on the ball and do what you're supposed to, and you have rejected. You're on the shelf, and I'm going to bring the church in. The church, for the most part, has done a good job evangelizing the world until recent days, and the, the church has been poisoned in recent days. Now, there's a true church. There is a true church out there, a remnant church. But there's a lot of places that call themselves Christians that, that aren't true Christians. They aren't truly the church, and they make life difficult for the church. Because we're going to hear it all along. Those of us who hold on to the Bible and say God's word is true, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and, man and woman. He created marriage. He created family. He created governments. He created all of these things. There was a worldwide flood that destroyed the world and restarted with Noah. And God has blessed Israel and all these different things that are true. And we hold on to the, that there is right and wrong. The church that is not holding on to the Bible is going to make us, the remnant, look bad. And we hear it all the time. Well, such and such church doesn't have any problem with. Take your pick of any biblical doctrine in there. You know, why do you? Well, I don't understand why they can say the Bible isn't true, but I'm going to hold on to the Bible. And we're becoming a smaller and smaller remnant in a place where more and more idol worship is going on under the name of Christianity. And it makes life difficult for us. We see it on the, on the televangelist. We can hear it on the radio where people say, all kinds of crazy things that aren't biblical. Our job as Christians is to hold on to the truth. And it is going to be harder and harder. Yes, the world has been converted. A lot of the world has been converted. Our job is to keep converting the world. 
and try hard to get all those crazy people who claim to be Christians that aren't to become Christians. Now, I don't know why they call themselves Christ followers if they don't believe in Jesus and don't believe in his word. I don't know what they're following. <laughs> you know, they don't understand what Christian means. They don't understand what it means to be a Christian. We need to be able to, and I'm not going to condemn them. I'm not their judge. But if I'm going in and I visit the church and they're not preaching the Bible and they're not accepting the word of God to be true, I'm not staying there very long. Matter of fact, probably never come back again. Am I going to go running around telling them about how bad they are? No. Yeah. Every once in a while somebody asks, what do you think about such and such person or so and so? Don't know, don't listen to them. Uh, there's certain people that I see enough of just on the clips on TV advertising their show, they're going, I'm not interested in hearing that person speak. You know, and others I listen to and go, nope, not interested. Am I going to sit there and judge them? Not unless they come to chloride and try to get into my church and, and bring that false doctrine, but as long as they stay out of chloride in our church, I don't care what they do. You know, if you come to me and say, you know, let's listen to this, and we listen to some of the things, I'm going, no, you don't want to be listening to this person. That's one thing. But I don't really want to feed myself because what I trust people to understand is that God in them is going to say, this is wrong. This person doesn't, isn't speaking for me. And if you have the spirit of God in you, just listen to that spirit because he'll tell you when somebody's not speaking, right? And you all have done the same thing. You come to me, well, I, th I heard so-and-so say such and such, just didn't sound right. And well, good, God's listening to you, <laughs> is, is speaking to you, and you're listening. Because there are things that are out there. And there's some good teachers that teach bad things. You know, some of the teachers I like, every once in a while, I hear them say the dumbest things and unscriptural things out there. And I go, okay, God, work on them. <laughs> You know, some of them have been around, they're older than I have been preaching longer than I have. God still hasn't gotten hold of them, but, you know, but, you know, it's mostly they're right, so I can deal with them. And we need to be able to get to this place where we say, God, I want to follow you. Are we going to be sitting with a teacher that we agree with 100% of the time? I've not found one yet. I have not found a single teacher that I agree with 100% of the time. My job has always been to find somebody that I agree with most of the time through the Bible and definitely have to agree with on all the important stuff. All the minor stuff, maybe, maybe not. It depends on how important I think it is. And even if I was to leave their church, I'm not going to sit there going around criticizing and tearing them down. I would just say, I disagreed on certain areas and, we're, and we'll leave it at that. Why? Because I'm not that pastor's judge. I'm not that minister's, that ministry's judge. God is. And I'm going to walk very carefully in, in making any judgment calls against them. Because they have to stand for, before God. And they may have good reasons for what they believe and what they, why they did things. But my job is just to support the word of God. And support them as best as possible. Now if they're way off base, then I'm going to say stay away from that church. If somebody is preaching the, a prosperity gospel, I would say stay away from that church. If they're preaching that you can lose your salvation, I would say you probably want to stay away from that church. Now, am I going to preach against them and, and all that? No. Nope. But if somebody says, should I stay there? That, I'm going, be aware. I have spent time in churches that believe you can lose your salvation. Very hard to be a teacher in that church. When you believe you can't lose your salvation and the church believes you can, it's a hard place to be. So I didn't stay in any of those very long. You know, so the, because I did not want to cause dissension in that body. And that's the thing for us. Our job is not to bring dissension into churches and bodies. 
you know, we can talk individually with somebody. We can talk, but, you know, but my job is not to go around, well, you know what that pastor did. You've got to stay in that church. That, that church believes this, and this, they believe this. And No, we don't want to go there. Maybe is a time to say, I know you listen to this pastor a lot. Be careful of this teaching of theirs, because I've got some pastors that I really like their teaching, but except for two or three points where I've heard them going, oh, I wish they didn't teach that. <laughs> I like everything else, but... <laughs> You know, so we need to be very careful on this. And it says that they converted the Gentiles and they shall come unto you, Israel, the church. The multitude of camels shall cover you and the dromedaries of Midian and Ephrah, all they of Sheba shall come and they shall bring gold and incense and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. Here we have shifted from the church to the millennial kingdom. All right? It says, the multitude of camels shall cover you. This is kind of an interesting idiom. Camels are associated with wealth. All right? So the camels you ride. The, the, the camels you ride. So, uh, but they're associated with wealth. The multitude of the camels shall cover you, the kingdom. So the wealth is all going to flow to Jesus in Jerusalem during that period of time. Remember, during the millennial kingdom, Human beings still have a sin nature that are alive because the human beings that are alive at that time came through the tribulation period without taking the mark of the beast, so they're converted to God. They, you know, they've followed God. They've recommended, they've recognized that they cannot take the mark of the beast. They've been saved, using our terminology. They still have their sin nature as they go into the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's still commerce going on. There's still nations out there. And the nations are sending their wealth to the God of the world, Jesus. All right? Jesus is going to rule the world from Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. Now, it's kind of hard for us to picture, but this is, this is what's going to happen. The, the world will get what they desire, a one-world government, except it will be the only one that can actually be a one-world government. Satan tries to bring that in during the, during the seven-year tribulation, and he's going to rule the world with fear and force and death and violence. Jesus is going to come in and be a benevolent leader who blesses the world and great prosperity will happen. We will see lifespans lengthen. We'll see the animals be restored back to their peaceful peaceful. Uh, essence where the child can sit on top of the aft's nest and not worry the, the, the sheep and the, and the wolves can sleep together with no problems uh, I guess that means he's going to take the carnivores and make them back to herbivores because <laughs> there's not going to be any hunger for them and we'll be back to the way things were supposed to be for 1,000 years mostly <laughs> there's still sin but he's going to rule with an iron rod so he's going to stop sin before it can ever really get going and you've got to imagine, God can make a very good stopping of sin. And I've always pictured it, you know, all of a sudden there'll be an angel at your door, you're thinking about doing something wrong, and an angel will be knocking at your door and going, uh-uh, nope, not doing that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so how, how, how severe that would be, I don't know, but, you know, God knows our thoughts. So he literally could shut down every thought that's going to lead to actions. So for a thousand years, people are going to be forced to be obedient, even though they don't want to be obedient. Then Satan will come along at the end of the thousand years 
and be given the opportunity to tell people, let's rebel against God. I know you want to anyway. And many will rebel against God. I don't know the extent of that. I, like I said, I don't know how far he will go. But he's going to rule with an iron scepter. People will be obedient. Because you can't have long life and peace without obedience. For a thousand years, people will be obedient. Satan may be, well, we know Satan is cast into, the, to the, uh, into hell for a thousand years, so there's no temptation from the outside. The demons are, are no longer there. We still, the sin nature is still there. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is still there. So people want to sin. How much will God allow it in a world of perfect peace? Huh? He's got plenty of power to stop it. A thousand years of ten, you know, uh, it says that anybody who lives to be a hundred is a child. So, so yeah, it would be a long, lifespan is going to be longer. Um, there's going to be people at the end of that that did not know the tribulation. All they know is the perfect rule of Christ and did not, and it will be stories that grandpa and great, great grandpa and great, great grandma, they, they, what are you guys talking about, that crazy, you know, no food, no, you know, all this murder and stuff. Are you, are you guys insane? I'm not going to say there's no murder, no, you know, but it will be so much lesser because people will be following God and there will be, to a degree, I believe, there will be an enforced obedience. How enforced? Don't know. Being that he's God and knows their thoughts, it, can be, it could be extremely enforced. You know, no, you're not, you know, you're not thinking about it. You know, you've been thinking about this. You've been thinking about this. You know, okay, we're going to throw you in jail for your thinking. You know, because, you're, because you're going to act. I don't know how bad it will be. But it could get that bad, and he's the only one that can really bring in thought, thought uh, prosecutions because he knows our thoughts. In our day and age, we're trying to bring in thoughts. You know, you have hate crimes now. Well, how, all crime is hate as far as I'm concerned. But now you can have special circumstances because we think that you were you know, hating them on it. So, you know, so now we're going to charge you with a greater crime. Well, you just had a moment of bad day, but, you know. Now, then he says the dromedaries, which are camels, but they are one-humped camels that are faster. Okay. Camels are two-humped, and they are slow and steady. Dromedaries have one hump, and everybody says, every article I read about them says that they are faster and swifter. So do we have them now? Huh? Oh yeah, we still have two. Um, we still have camels and dromed. I mean, uh, oh yeah, they're still out there. I know. Oh. oh yeah. Yeah, we usually just call them all camels. Oh. That okay. these are. Well, they're both. They're, they're, they're both camels. They are both camels. We usually say two hump or one hump. Oh, oh I never heard of that. Dromedaries are, and then people will tell you the dromedaries are camels too. I mean, they they'll use those interchangeable, but they really do refer to two different types of the same animal. Dromedaries are the one hump faster animal and the two humps are the camels. Camels are, have a lot larger area. The dromedaries are mostly in Arabia. All right? Which is why they bring up Midian and Ephah. Midian and Ephah are both uh, sons of 
Abraham and Katara. If you remember, Katara is Abraham's technically third wife, but uh, Hagar, Hagar was considered a concubine more than a wife, so most people will tell you that Katara was his second wife. She gives him 12 sons, which is kind of interesting. He has one son with Sarah, and he says, 100 years old when that happens, and after Sarah dies, he has 12 more sons with Katara. You know, when God makes somebody alive, he makes them alive. <laughs> uh, and so Midian and Ephron are both nations that are down in the southeastern direction from Israel. They're down near where Moab was. They cover that Saudi Arabia on the northeast side of Saudi Arabia. The Midianites are worshipers of one god because they come from Adam's seed and they follow one God. When, Abraham, when Moses comes across the desert, he comes to the Midianites, and we find that they are worshipers of one God. Now, they don't really follow him exactly the same way the Jews do and all of that, but they are the worshipers of one God. And there are many people that are worshipers of one God, and they trace their roots to Eber, and they're considered parts of the Hebrew people. All, all Jews are Hebrews, but not all Hebrews. Uh, all Hebrews, all Jews are Hebrews, but not, not all Hebrews are Jews. All right? Because Eber goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And the followers of Eber follow one God. They follow the God of the universe. Not the same way that, that Moses and, and the Jews do, but they are Eber was in battle with Nimrod during that period of time. Nimrod brought in all of false worship and, bad and false religion. All the false religions worked their way back to Babylon and Nimrod. He had a pantheon of 36 gods and worshiped the gods through the sacrifices of human beings. And as opposed to true worship of God, which Eber represents. Which is why when, Moses, when Joseph comes down to Egypt, he tells his father, don't tell them that you're shepherds and don't tell them that you are Hebrews. Okay? Because why did it say when he entertained his brothers? That, is, that the Egyptians did not eat with Hebrews. Why? Because Hebrews were the follower of one God, as opposed to the Egyptians who had lots and lots of gods. Now, the, the Hebrew peoples have always had trouble because they follow one God in the world that follows many gods. And the Hebrew people stretch all through the world. All, right? all the way into most of Asia had one belief in a monotheistic belief until the last three or 400 years when they've started getting into polytheism and different other sects out there. But before that, they followed one God, the God of the universe. And so we see here these two nations coming up, and they're saying, they shall come to you, they shall bring their gold and their incense, and they shall show forth praises unto God. During the millennial kingdom, everybody in the world is going to come to Jerusalem and worship. Everybody. They're going to bring their gold, they're going to bring their silver, they're going to bring their trade to Jerusalem and celebrate. They're going to bring it to that new capital. Verse 7 says, All the flocks of Kedar shall gather together and bring, and the rams of Nehepha 
shall minister unto you, and they shall come up with acceptance to my on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. So here we have a couple more names here. Uh, these are all and these two that you're talking about, Kedar and Nithahal, are sons of Ishmael. Okay? Ishmael was the rejected son of Abraham, who is the father of much of the tribes of the Arab Peninsula that are still causing problems for Israel today, all because Abraham and Sarah tried to help God out. How many times do we get in trouble trying to help God out? God, let me help you get to where we're trying to go to. And we mess things up. And sometimes there's long-term effects. Because when Ishmael was put away and put out of the house, Abraham made a very bad prayer. God, bless Ishmael and make him great. And God says, I've heard your prayer, and he will be great. But he also said he'll be a wild donkey of a man and cause, cause, cause problems. But a prayer of the father to bless his son has caused Israel no end of problems ever since. That is one prayer that Israel wishes that God had said no to. That, that maybe God had said no to Abraham, they wouldn't have half the problems that they, they have. They still would. A lot of them. No. The Muslims don't start until 600 AD. And the Muslims are a combination of Judaism, Christianity, and a whole bunch of other pagan religions that go around them. Muhammad didn't like any of the, any of the religions out there, so he made his own. And he just meshed them all together, which is why they're so close to, he used a lot of Jewish and Christian thought processes in it, but not completely. So they started long after Christianity. Um, so, but they are of that world. A lot of Ishmael's descendants follow into that, that line of thinking. But no, they, they didn't start out of them. There are other religions that did that. But it says, they shall come with acceptance to your altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. So it says, these people are going to bring sacrifices to, this, to the temple. And keep in mind, we've said this over and over, during the millennial kingdom, there will be sacrifices in the temple. All right? There will not be the sin offering, because Jesus is the sin offering. He completed the sin offering. There won't be trespass offerings, because Jesus is the trespass offering. But there will be burnt offerings. Remember, burnt offerings are mean a total commitment to God. There will be thanksgiving offerings where people get to offer the sacrifice and have a party eating the food that, that is left over that wasn't, that wasn't burnt on the altar. So there will be sacrifices, not the sin offerings that Jesus fulfilled, but there will be the offerings that show dedication to God. Now, will there be in the new heaven and new earth? No, because there's no death. So the new heaven and new earth will not have offerings because it doesn't even have a temple. All right? But during this period of time, there's a temple, and God says, you're going to worship me there, and my house will be glorified. People will come to the temple to honor God. Now, will this just be the temple in Jerusalem? Well, we're there. We've got God living in us, and we are still his temple. So yes, there's a degree where 
we as his people will be glorified as well. But at this point, we're in the millennial kingdom. Sacrifices are going on. And then it says, kind of an interesting thing, who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? <laughs> it's kind of an interesting statement because this goes to the picture of, have you seen pictures of birds that are so thick that they appear like a cloud as they fly around? That's the kind of talk he's going. The birds are all flying. He's, he's talking about how thick the multitude is coming to the temple. Or the doves to their window. Or the doves to their nest. When it's time for a storm, doves fly, t fly to their nest. At least that's what I've read in the books. I'm not, a, I'm not a bird watcher, so I will take their word on it. The doves go to their nests. Uh, eagles fly above the storms. Many birds go to their nest and hunker down in their nest and cover their young and underneath their wings and everything. I, I have seen pictures of chickens that, you know, chickens that do that. You know, they cover their, cover their, you know, their young with their wings. Uh, if they can get into a chicken house, they'll do that as well. But other than that, they will do what it takes to protect them. And here he's saying, the multitude of people will look like the cloud of birds flying toward Jerusalem. That's a lot of travel going toward Jerusalem. And they're going to be going back out as well. They're going to come in and out, in and out in their worship of God as they go back to their countryside and start rebuilding and re-farming re and all of that stuff. And I can't imagine what a world is going to be like with no, no major sins. You know, how, much, how much God will keep all sin out, I don't know. Will there be murders? Probably not. Or if there are, there are very, very few. Will there be theft? No. He says the people are going to worship. And God is capable of taking away, basically enforcing his will on us. And the world keeps going. This is the thing you hear. If, if God was really good and all-powerful, couldn't he stop evil from happening? Yes, he could make us automatons and make us be obedient. I do believe that during the Millennial Kingdom, most of our free will is going to be taken and, and forced into obedience. How much so? I don't know. I, I, I kind of go to, is he going to totally take away free will during that period of time and people are going to not? It is possible. Because how do you have lots of good and everything going the right way without that free will being taken away? But people want to sin because their sin nature is going to be there. The last push for the world is that if we just lived in a perfect world, we would make right decisions. Adam and Eve did not. The millennial kingdom will be that proof to the world that that last lie that you keep believing is not true. A thousand years of good rule, of perfect environment, and people are still going to rebel. That's why I, I tend to lean to the idea that God's going to take away most free will that's toward the evil side and say, no, we're not going to have that. We're, going to, we're building a utopia here. You're not going to go do what's wrong, which gives Satan a great hand when he comes up because there are going to be a lot of people that are going to be really angry. I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And that's exactly what I tell people. I'm going, well, you, do you really want God to stop all evil? Oh, yeah, I think it would be really good. I go, then I'm going to pray that God will stop you from doing anything that would be considered, no, I don't want that. Well, then you don't, you don't want God to step in and take away free will. He could, and he can, but he doesn't. Which is why I think in the millennial kingdom he probably will. 
just to prove to people that they're still evil. That they're still evil. Your heart is still evil. Your heart still wants to do wrong. It won't bother them to not want to not be able to do bad. Because yeah. they'll want to do right. So it's not gonna problem there won't be a problem to those who are following him and desiring to it won't be a problem to us because we've got our glorified bodies that we won't want to sin anyway. Because we lose our free will. Once we die, our free will is taken. We we cannot make a decision against God because we have made our decision. We have eternal life and eternal following. And but it was what we wanted. Well, there's no free will to do wrong. We have free will to do what's right and make decisions, but I won't have a free will to do wrong and won't desire to. Right. The only problem with those in the millennial kingdom is they don't have the glorified body that wants to do right. Some may want to. They love God. They recognize who he is, and they want to follow him, and they're happy that, that, that God won't let them. You know, God knocks on their door when they're starting to make the wrong decision. Those who are in rebellion, they're going to just be getting angrier and angry with every year that they live. Living to be seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years, a thousand years, getting angrier with every year because God won't let them sin. That's why I really believe, I believe that there, there will be that much restriction. I can't prove it. All I know is it says he rules with an iron rod. People are going to be obedient. And that is what the, the millennial kingdom takes away the last accusations of man. If I just lived in a perfect world, if I just had a good government, if everything was right and there was no poverty, if everything was good, I'd be a good person. Which is why I believe God will say, you're not going to sin during that period of time. He's going to be at your door so that you will be seeing that even in perfection, you won't be obedient. And this is how I picture the Millennial Kingdom. I can't prove it, but I just believe that it's God's last ditch thing that man says, we just led in utopia, you know, if I just had everything perfect, I'd be good. And God says, I'm going to give you a thousand years of perfect. And you're still not going to be good. You're still going to have human nature, you're still going to be fallen, and if you don't turn your life to me, you'll be making bad decisions. I cannot believe that I'm asking this question now, but what is... Someone was to ask me the reason for the millennium. What would I tell them? Just what I said. I think it's God's answer to man's last arguments. If I just lived in a perfect world, if everything was, if there wasn't any poverty, if there wasn't any corruption, I'd be a good person. So the millennium is for a perfect world? I think so. I think it's God's last, because that's people's big argument nowadays. If everything was just, if we didn't have poverty, nobody would do wrong. If we didn't have, you know, corrupt, corrupt government, we'd, we'd, nothing would be wrong. If, if we didn't have bad influences, nothing would be wrong. And you hear it all the time when the intellectuals out there. So God leaves a remnant on the earth to go through this period that he thinks is worthy of a second chance. Everybody who does not take the mark of the beast during the, during the, during the uh, tribulation period will be left and will be inhabiting the earth during the, tribulation, uh, during the millennial kingdom. Everybody. Everybody. So there'll be some really bad people who just, for whatever reason, didn't take the mark of the beast. But most people who don't take the mark of the beast are going to be followers of God. Yeah. 
because there's no reason to go through the. They will go through that. They will be alive at the end of the tribulation period, and they will be the living people that enter into the millennial kingdom because they were obedient to God and didn't take the mark of the beast and and suffered from that. They go to straight to hell. They wait the judgment. Wait the judgment to be thrown into the lake of fire. Folks that are in the millennium, what happens to the rest of them on the earth? Everybody who has taken the mark of the beast and Satan and his demons will be cast into hell for a thousand years. At the beginning of the millennium. At the end of the millennium period, Satan will be released. And I don't know to the extent, but he says Satan will be released. He will then tempt people to rebel against God, and he will lead an army of, of people against God. But these folks, they'll be right behind Satan. Which folks? The folks that took the mark. No, they're, they're still in hell. Just, just, Satan just Satan and possibly some of his demons, but the Bible says Satan will be released. But he's going to have that opportunity at the end of the millennial kingdom to get one last rebellion against God. And that's why I think the millennial kingdom is to prove that even living in a perfect world is not going to make men good. It's the last, because God always has truth and Satan always has lies, and this will be the last big lie of Satan. Hitler was going to build a thousand-year Reich. Stalin was going to build a thousand-year empire. You know, everybody's goal is to build a thousand-year empire. So it's like one of, kind of like one of those tests. It's one more test. Satan, you have got them convinced that if they were just have a perfect world, they'd be good. I'll give them a perfect world. Now you have one last chance to go out and, and tempt them and prove that that last bastion of, of mis, misinformation is, is incorrect. Because we got all these lies that Satan gives out. Just be good enough and you'll go to heaven. God would never send anybody to hell. Everybody goes to hell. It goes to heaven. <laughs> well, I forgot all the numbers and everything. Can we, can we put a number on those that are going to go through the uh, millennium? Whatever's left, there's no number on it. There's no number on it. We know there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are going to convert many people to, to God. But they'll still be there during the millennium. As long as they haven't been killed. Many people who get saved during that period of time are going to die. Because Satan is going to take their head off, and, and it's going to be hard to live. When you can't buy or sell during the tribulation period, it's going to be hard. That's why you really have to be a follower of God not to take the mark. So the 144 are susceptible to death? Yes. Yeah. There will be a point where God says he's put a mark on their foreheads, and they're protected for a while. How long a while? I don't know. I don't know if it's the whole seven years or... Part of the seven years, because the two prophets that stand at the temple will be not able to be killed until God says, now is the time to die. And then he says, then, then they die. But up until then, people can't touch them. They're going to try. They're going to want to kill them, but they will, not, they will not die because God's protecting them. That's during the tribulation period. During the tribulation period. The two prophets. But all uh, this, we're going to be gone up in heaven. We'll be in heaven during that period of time. We will, we will rule during the millennial kingdom with Christ. But during the tribulation period, we will be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoying the benefits of having accepted him before all the tribulation period hit. We will be here on earth, but we will 
That will be our that'll be our honeymoon. We'll have we'll be ruling with him over the thousand year reign of Christ as as rulers. With glorified bodies. We're gonna be like human beings or no. like glorified. glorified. Be glorified. Now what what that means the re disciples recognize Jesus, but the walls he could walk through walls, he could end up instantly places. What does that mean to us? I have no idea what a glorified body looks like other than the few pictures we have of Jesus being seen. Having said that, we will probably also be servants during that period of time, just as the angels are servants to us during this period of time. So we will have something to do. We're not just going to sit around on clouds plucking harps. God's going to say, I want you to help that person. We may be one of those knocking on the door of somebody saying, I'm going to help you not make the decision that you are thinking about making. But we're not going to be tempted. Because our sin nature is gone and our free and our free will is gone, just as the angels and the demons have no free will. They do what it is they've chosen to do. We will have God's will and we will gladly accept his will because that's what we have chosen to do. There is no way on earth right now that the seven years can happen right now or the Well it could happen any moment, but we won't we will be gone before it happens. This world is getting bad, and that is the greatest thing that you know. That and this, this is the hope that they keep that, that was talked about in the scriptures. Look to Jesus's coming to snatch away the church, because we get to have an enjoyable fellowship time with Him in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And can you imagine what kind of a banquet God's going to put on? You think about the best banquet you have ever attended. But I'm just saying, if you think about the most scrumptious banquet you have ever attended, whatever it might be, a, a wedding feast, uh, whatever, whatever it might be, whatever, whatever the best feast you can ever picture in your mind, there's going to be nothing compared to God's feast. And it's going to last seven years, just as a Jewish wedding was. <laughs> in a Jewish wedding, the groom went to prepare his home for his bride, what did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you, I would have told you. So he's gone to prepare our home. It's taken him a long time to prepare our home. But just as they would in the in the Jewish wedding, the groom comes and takes his bride, kidnaps her. She does not know when she's going to be taken. Now her father usually does, I mean, because he's he's gonna to have to know the groom is coming to take her away, you know. It's, uh, he doesn't want to shoot. Yeah, he doesn't want to shoot the shoot the groom because his daughter is being taken away. So he's probably in the know. Yeah. All right. But Jesus is going to come, and I can almost picture Jesus up in heaven. Father, is it time yet? Is it time? Is it time to go get my bride? Is it time? Being wherever he's at is going to be the perfect place. Actually, it would be kind of good because we'll be able to help the people. Help anything. And that's why I kind of think we will be servants. We won't just be sitting. We will be very much like the, ser the angels. The angels serve us now and protect us, and I think it will be pretty much that way in the millennial kingdom. We will be doing help you know, of the people that are alive, that are, especially those that are wanting to follow God. So we at least got to have bodies. Some form of body, whatever, whatever it means. Jesus was not locked in by walls. 
You know, he, he was not, he was not, he could just show up where he wanted to show up and he still had a, something that looked like a human body. What will we look at? What will our differences be? I don't even want to speculate. Uh, you know, what kind of body do I want? I hope I had the body that I had when I was in shape. <laughs> I don't want this body. I, I want that, I want that 180, that 180 pound body that had muscles and was in shape, you know, and had some hair. Maybe God's got something even better than that. We don't know. We know that Jesus was recognizable, but yet he wasn't necessarily recognizable. Mary in the garden did not recognize that she was at his feet until he spoke. The, the disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize Jesus until he broke bread and said or did something that all of a sudden triggered. Because it's understandable he's dead as far as they're concerned, so they're not, you know, he could have looked exactly like himself and not, not been recognized. And yet Thomas could have put his hands on his body. Yeah. yeah. And, and he ate food, so there's something, and you know. Yeah, he wasn't, a go he wasn't a ghost. He had a body of some sort. We will have a body of some sort that will be recognizable as us, as a human being. You know, will we use it just when we're on earth and not have and have something different? So I don't know. We, you know, what does Jesus look like other places? And then last verse I want to cover is verse 10. And the sons and strangers shall build up your walls, and the king shall minister unto you. Before in my wrath I smote you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. God, when he disciplines, disciplines in his anger, but he also is, the key word there is he is disciplining. Discipline hurts. Otherwise it's not discipline. All right? People out there in the world say, well, you can't hurt your children, you can't cause pain to your children. Whether it's physical, emotional, taking away their stuff, whatever, Discipline always hurts. <laughs> because discipline's purpose is to make you not want to get hurt again. So the discipline has to be strong enough to, it, to cause enough pain that says, that hurt, I don't want to do it again. God does that to us all the time. He puts us in places where he says, I'm going to cause pain for your disobedience so that next time you think about doing what's wrong, maybe you remember the pain. And if it wasn't enough, he'll give you more pain the next time. And he's saying, these, I caused pain for you, but it was out of mercy. Not that I wanted to hurt you. You know, my dad used to say, and I used to hate this when I was a kid, this, you know, getting ready for spanking, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And I'm thinking at the time when I was a kid, yeah, right, I'm the one with the sore bottom. They won't be able to sit down when you're done, and it's not, I don't see how it's hurting you. First time I had to spank one of my kids, I understood that statement. I need to spank you because you need to learn to not do this again, but I don't want to in inflict pain. Can you imagine the tears in God's eyes when we are so stubborn that he has to give us discipline? He goes, I've told you over and over, couldn't you just read and, and pay attention but no, you're going to make me <laughs> discipline you. Adam and Eve walking into the garden. Adam and Eve, where are you? Oh, you're not going to repent. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to kick you out of the garden. You know, I built this garden just for you. 
So you'd have a perfect environment to live in, and you've been disobedient and won't repent, and now I've got to kick you out. Get to know his time. Millions and millions and possibly billions of people all dishonoring God. And God has to kill them all. His children. Why did God close the door to the ark? Because Noah probably would have opened it when people are pounding on the ark, wanting in. When Methuselah is there knocking on the door. When his uncle... You know, uncles and aunts and everybody are all of a sudden at that door recognizing that God's brought the judgment that he said he was going to be bringing. God closed the door and Noah could not open it. Because like any of us, we, our heart would be broken. We would be trying to open that door. So God closed it. What a painful situation that would be. What a painful situation is going to be when God says, Satan, you can rule for, for seven years and harm all of my creation out there. Harm my nation Israel. Then he's going to protect them so they don't get totally wiped out. But it, it's got to bring tears to his eyes when he says, you're not listening to me, you're not honoring me. Now you get the results of it. The pain he has to go through when he disciplines his children. What a powerful picture that we have there you know, of what God cares about and how much he loves. And he loves us too much to allow us to go down the wrong path and, and works with us. Lord, we just ask you to bless this evening. Lord, help us to see you and make good decisions. Lord, we have so much to look forward to. Those of us that are saved, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and then ruling with you during the millennial kingdom. Lord, help us give a heart and desire to see that no one goes through tribulation into hell. And we just ask you to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening, and have a wonderful day.